0: Let not those who rejoice over me, who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those who wink the eye, who hate me without cause, for they do not speak peace. But against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me, they say, Aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord." Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let not let them not rejoice over me. Those are verses 19 to 24 of Psalm 35, which is the psalm which is appointed for today, Friday, July the 15th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We are continuing to look at uh, lessons in the book of Joshua. Today it's going to be chapter 4, verse 19 through chapter 5 verse 1, and then skip forward to chapter 5, verses 10 to 15. The gospel today is from Matthew, uh, chapter 26, verses 17 to 25, and the epistle is Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. So we're continuing to look at the the beginning of the um, people coming into the land of Canaan at Jericho. And so remember yesterday, we have crossed the Jordan River and are now on the other side in the land itself. So they, they've made that much progress. The Lord took them over and then told uh, Joshua to ask uh, everybody to go back, and uh, each one from each tribe to go back and, and take a rock from the Jordan River and then make a heap of stones as a memorial. So that's where we left off yesterday was when they had done that. So today we get the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And I commented yesterday that um, the gods were thought to be territorial gods, and one of the, the, so they, they were over— an area or a region, and so that's the reason when Moses goes to Pharaoh and said, "Let your people go three days into the wilderness and worship the Lord there." It's a double insult because what it is is it go a three days journey would be outside the reach of the God of um, Egypt, and Pharaoh was one of those gods, but but that would have taken them outside. The realm of that god or those gods over that area. And so when he says, let's go three days into the wilderness, he, he's saying, let's get outside of your reach. And then when he says to worship our god, then what he's saying is, "Is we've renounced you and the gods of Egypt. We have a different god. We are not Egyptians in that way. And so that's what's happening here, is is that now what they know is that God got them over the Red Sea. He also now got them over the Jordan River in the same way, proving himself to these people in the same way that he proved himself to the generation that came out of Egypt. And that's why uh, Joshua says here, he says, the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So this generation sees that same miracle here with the Jordan rather than the Red Sea in order to get them into the land, whereas the others saw that miracle of parting the Red Sea to get them out of the land of Egypt. While the, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. And so what they heard was the Lord did this work and now they feared the people of Israel because they knew their God was with them, that this was a different kind of God. He went with his people wherever they were and therefore there was something to fear. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. So it's four days. They've been there four days and now they celebrate the Passover. It's that time of year when they come into the land. And after the day of Passover on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day that they ate of the produce of the land. So the manna was only intended there as a temporary provision while they were in the wilderness. But God was faithful to provide that manna day by day for 40 years. And, and now that they're in the land, they no longer need the manna. They've subsisted on it for 40 years when they could have stopped subsisting on it had they had the faith to go into the land and so they see all these things that God's doing about his faithfulness and his presence with them and that they knew the whole time they were in the wilderness because they had the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night and all the provision and now they come into the land and God is giving them the produce of the land to replace the manna that they had had before. It was no longer um, manna for the people of Israel but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, so he's moved forward from Gilgal to Jericho, he lifted up his eyes, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Now, one of the things that I need to mention here is that we did skip from uh, chapter five, verse one all the way down to chapter uh, to chapter five, verse ten. So what we've skipped, actually, we had skipped it before is when there's no longer any when the when we heard about the fear of the Amorites and the Canaanites, then what happened is before, the Passover. Uh, in that intervening four days, what happens is is that they, the Israelites, um, circumcised themselves as before the Passover. So they consecrated themselves by circumcising themselves. They had not practiced circumcision while they were in the wilderness. And now Joshua tells them they've got to do this in order to enter the land in the same way that it wasn't safe for Moses to go back to the people unless he had his children circumcised. Here, it's not safe for them to enter into the land until they have renewed the covenant. God's covenant was still there, but they now have to renew the covenant and do what they need to do. So when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? There's just one guy. (laughs) He said, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. So after all this time, they haven't had the protection of the commander of the Lord's army until this time. And now they come into Jericho and the conquest must start. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and said, what does my Lord say to his servant? And The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So what he's seeing is, is that, that Joshua wants to know, are you on our side or are you on the side of our enemies? And, and the, the, man, the commander of the Lord's army's response is, I'm here. And what he's saying is, is that, that you're the one who has to pick a side, not me. You've got to decide if you're going to fight um, with me you know, for the Lord's army because that's who's going to win the victory or if you're going to fight against us. And so Joshua gets it right. He falls uh, down and worships and is told, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground in the same way that Moses was told to take off his sandals at the mountain when he came upon the burning bush. And so this is holy ground. It's God's ground. This, this land belongs to the Lord. In the gospel today, the, the, we're getting closer to Passover. The first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus asking, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And so people in um, Jerusalem had extra rooms for these pilgrims who had come along the way in order that they would have a place to celebrate the Passover. And so Jesus said, go into the city to a certain man. And say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I'll keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, did everybody in Jerusalem at the time know where Jesus spent the Passover? Absolutely, they did. It's odd that Matthew doesn't name him. Because Jesus, to a certain man, means Jesus had to have named this guy. And, but he, so Matthew doesn't want to draw, attract any more attention to this guy, not to set up a shrine, not to invite persecution. On, against a man and his family. In the same way that John is the only one to record the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and, and we're, we're certain that the reason for that is that um, the other gospel writers wrote earlier than John, so the presumption is, is that um, Lazarus had died by the time John wrote his gospel, and the reason we would say that is because the, um, he records that they sought to kill Lazarus after this had happened, so we believe that now that sort of the coast is clear because Lazarus has died, and so it's okay for John to write about that miracle while the others avoided it in order to protect Lazarus from, from persecution by either the Jews or by Rome. So he, he, Jesus says, go, go to this certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Now, we know that Judas knew who it was because he had already yesterday in the gospel lesson agreed to do this very thing in betraying Jesus so that he could be arrested. So they all asked, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the uh, dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him, for that man, if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. It's the same thing that he says to Pilate when when Pilate asks if Jesus is a king. You've said so. And so it's, it's affirming the truth that has already been spoken, even though it was spoken in the form of a question. So here we see that Judas asks this question, knowing that he is the betrayer. What he's actually asking is to say, do you know it's me? Are you aware that, it, that it's me who is going to be the betrayer? Um, it, it's, it's Judas's way of testing Jesus one final time. And Jesus says, yes, it is. And then in other Gospels, it's recorded that he goes out and um, Jesus says, as he goes out, go do what you have to do. And they assume that he's going to do something actually noble because he was the treasurer. They expected him to go out and and give to the poor as part of their Passover celebration. But Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. In the um, Romans passage today, remember what I told you yesterday, this is the first 11 chapters are basically Paul's theology regarding the need for a Savior and the lifting up Jesus as that Savior. It's also him working through the theology of if the covenant is irrevocable, how can the Jews now be outside that covenant in some way and the Gentiles be brought in? And what Paul is at pains to say is that's not what's happening at all. There's just a time now when they're disobedient, when you can come in. And then ultimately, when the fullness of the Gentiles have come into the covenant, then then it'll be closed off and the, and all of Israel will be brought in at that time. So he moves from that in, in chapter first. 11 chapters into, how do, what do we do with all this? How do we live now that we accept the truth of these things? And so he's, he's going to give just, this is a series of things that, that are going to require very little comment from me, because he's just going to, and if you could just make a list and say, okay, here's a, here's, a point, here's a set of bullet points, that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He says, let love be genuine. In other words, don't be phony. When you love, love. Don't, don't do so just for appearances. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Pretty simple, right? Hate evil. Love good. Uh, love one another with brotherly affection. In, in other words, he, he's defining the way that we need to love one another a, as a familial relationship. In other words, love one another as though you're brothers and sisters because you are, because you're children of God now. You have one father, Jesus said, and, and that's the father who's in heaven. And so now we've been brought together as children of the living God. And so we're to love one another with the same kind of affection that we have for our siblings, for instance, if we have siblings. And then he says, outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, if if you want to outdo one another, if you you want to to compete with one another, do it this way. Do it by showing honor. And what that would mean is, is they'd be honoring the Lord, but they would be honoring one another. And if you want to compete with one another, he says, that's the way to do it. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. In other words, just never let your guard down. Always be prepared to to have zeal for the Lord, to serve him. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. I mean, th- Those three things right there, rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, and, and being constant in prayer, should sort of define the contours of the Christian life right there. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In other words, don't be passive about this sharing of hospitality. Actually, be, be active in showing that. Do everything you can to show hospitality, and that's to show hospitality to the saints, to the brothers and sisters in Christ, but also to others. In, in, in order that you might get an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Well, that's exactly what Jesus said to do. We're to rejoice when we're persecuted because um, that, that's a blessedness from the uh, Beatitudes. And so bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That's not easy to do, and it's certainly not our first reaction. Then we need to live from the Spirit if we're to be able to do that very thing rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And sometimes that's hard for people as well. It, it, probably it's harder for people to rejoice with those who are rejoicing because at some level we take it personally and we think, well, you know, I don't have anything to rejoice about. Why do, why do the good things happen to other people? So, but, it, but it's what we're called to do. We're to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. And that, that's probably the biggest thing Paul's ever going to say. He's going to say it essentially twice in this passage, to live in harmony with one another. And what he's saying is, just don't let there be divisions among you. Live, live in such a way that, that that it exhibits the love of Christ, that it exhibits the love of the Trinity, that we're to live in harmony with one another is to consider one another better than ourselves and to serve one another and to love one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Now, the lowly would be a socioeconomic idea, right? I mean, so uh, that that's not in the... Um in the church, those distinctions aren't to be there, and that's what Paul does with Onesimus in the letter to Philemon. He accepts Onesimus, the slave, as a brother, and then tells Philemon that you need to treat him as a brother as well. He may be a slave, but he's also your brother in Christ, and it's important that you treat him that way. And so Paul is, is never going to rise above other people in any shape, form, or fashion. So he's, when he simply uses this word lowly. What he's, what he's talking about is, is, is that in socioeconomic worldly terms, these people would, would be low on the socioeconomic or social scale. Uh, never be wise in your own sight. You know, be humble. Uh, that, that's another way of saying that, but it's important to say it that way because this is a specific kind of humility. Never be wise in your own sight. In other words, always be willing to, be, to learn and to hear. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So no matter what you do to me, I'm not going to return you evil for evil. I'm taking the high road here. I, I want people to see that the way that, that we deal with things in the church as Christians is different from the way the world responds. So he, he's, he's given, this is the, it goes back to the transformation of the self by the renewing of the mind. You've got to think in a Christian way. We are intended to think and act in different ways than the world. And he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, le- live peaceably with all. And that goes back to the live in harmony with one another. But but it's, this is extending that out into a general principle. Live in harmony with one another speaks about the, the life of Christians with one another. And here when he says, live peaceably with all as far as it depends on you, that all encompasses the non-Christian community. And, and he says, do your best to live peaceably with those people, recognizing that it's not always possible, because some people won't have it that way. They won't allow you to live at peace with them. They constantly have to come at you in some shape, form, or fashion. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. So in other words, get over it, forgive, and move on. If vengeance comes, then let that be the Lord's doing and not your doing. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. And it does. When you flip the script, and you don't act like they do, Sometimes those people can be won over because they see something different in you. Um, I had a boss one time who ended up going to prison for <laughs> committing fraud, and I was right rude to him about something. He had cost me a lot of money and failed to, um, to live up to promises he had made me as a condition of my, my going to work for him. He failed to live up to those things and failed to do those things, and so we came up to a, a different kind of a situation situation. And and I was rude to him. And I called back later, and he wouldn't speak with me. And so I told his wife, I said, I want you to do something for me, please. Would you tell him that I'm sorry? Even though the guy defrauded me and and stolen money from me, essentially, and failed to keep his promises, it totally disarmed him, totally disarmed him that I did that. But, But I knew that I had to account for my conduct, not his. It didn't change my mind about what he had offered me going forward didn't change that at all. I couldn't continue to be in business with a guy who, who was a fraudster. <laughs> but what it did was it, I took responsibility for my actions, for, for having been rude to him about that. And then he goes on to say, don't be— Overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And if you want to see where that plays in, you can go back and look at um, Acts four, or not Acts four, sorry Genesis four. If you look at the story of Cain and Abel, what you'll see is that that that's exactly what God warns Cain about. That evil is crouching at your door. Don't let it overcome you. You must master it. And that's exactly what he's saying. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, so when evil comes at you, don't let that overwhelm you. Don't let that destroy who you are and cause you to become like that. No, no, no. Do good, even in the face of evil. And that's the way to overcome evil in the world is to continue to do that. I remember several years ago, there was a shooting in an Amish community, and that community then reached out to the man who had done the shooting, who had killed some people, and, and loved him and forgave him. And that made an impact in the world, and we need to be those people who are quick to be able to do those kinds of things because we live from the Spirit and we live with a long-term view in mind. The, the history of the world will be written by the victor who is God. And so let's, let's be the heroes in that story.